Welcome to the DNVGL Talks Energy podcast series. Electrification, rise of renewables and new technologies supported by more data and IT systems are transforming the power system. Join us each week as we discuss these changes with guests from around the industry. Welcome to the first episode of Series 4 of DNVGL Talks Energy here from the Global Smart Energy Summit in Dubai. My guest today is Betty Sito, Head of Department Sustainable Buildings and Communities of DNVGL. Hi Betty. Hello Matthias. Nice having you here. Thank you very much. So we want to talk about today the report we launched mm -hmm. here in Dubai called Energy Transition Framework for Cities and you will talk a little bit about what we found out but before we do this, it would be great if you could introduce yourself as a person and also tell us what you are doing in DNVGL. Sure thing. Um, so I'm Betty Sito, I'm Head of Department as you mentioned, and I lead our Sustainable Buildings and Communities team where we provide carbon neutral cities and sustainability uh, services for cities as well as for buildings. We work both with municipalities and also with architects and um, project developers and building owners to help them to be more sustainable in the built environment. Right. So let's get right into this report. Um, okay. Of course, I would be uh, very interested what are the, the highlights you mm -hmm. found uh, in your studies. So the highlights that we found are that mid-sized cities are doing some very, very innovative uh, projects and initiatives and setting ambitious targets that are driving many of their um, energy and sustainability uh, initiatives. So there are seven dimensions, um, and similar to the concept of seven habits for highly effective people, it's, um, it's seven habits of highly effective cities in the energy transition. And it all starts with sustainability governance. And how do cities set goals? How do they set policy? How do they set the vision for a um, sustainable and carbon neutral community? The selection of cities I saw in the report was quite interesting. So you didn't take like the mega cities, mm -hmm. you, you took rather, I would, don't want to call them tier two cities, mm -hmm. but smaller ones. Uh, and some which are close to our heart, like Bristol, for example. <laughs> uh, can you talk a bit around the cities you selected and, and give us a bit of a background why those? Sure. So why mid-sized cities? Um, well, we feel that a lot of attention has been paid to megacities, and there is a lot of um, activity happening at that level. But there is also significant innovation um, and a can-do attitude that mid-sized cities have. And they can be more nimble, and they um, also comprise a greater proportion of the world's population in total. So we felt like we wanted to highlight the, um, the really interesting work that's happening at the mid-sized city level. Um, that perhaps many people haven't heard that much about to date. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so maybe we can change this today. That would be good. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, if we talk about the opportunities this with come for cities, with also the pressures around sustainability mm -hmm. and being more environmentally friendly, could you talk a bit about the motivations of cities mm -hmm. doing this and maybe pick some from your report mm -hmm. comparing them? So the motivation of cities um, has really be, been driven by, I think, the climate imperative, a realization that the world is not moving fast enough to address climate change and to address global um, emissions. And so if you look at our report, we do highlight the, um, 
the greenhouse gas emissions reduction targets that many of the cities have adopted, um, such as uh, Palo Alto, 80% reduction in emissions by 2030, uh, City of Adelaide, uh, carbon neutral by 2025. So targets that are far and above, you know, more aggressive than the Paris Agreement. And, um, you know, cities are just saying that we're not moving fast enough on climate change and that it's up to cities um, at this point to really, you know, step up and um, demonstrate to the world what can be done at a more grassroots and more community level. Mm. I saw in the report that you compare the cities a bit on, on like scales, mm -hmm. uh, how well they do. Yeah. And one was standing out uh, that was Cambridge. Mm -hmm. uh, they mm -hmm. had very high scores on many dimensions yeah. at yeah. least I looked mm -hmm. at. So what did they get right? <laughs> Um, so each of the each of the seven dimensions of the framework have five or six best practice indicators, um, and so that's how the score is built up from the best practice indicators. One of the key findings from the report is that cities to date have been very active related to solar uh, PV, um, and what Cambridge is doing is moving beyond solar, and that's a trend that we're starting to see with these cities is, okay, you know, we've been very successful with solar projects, both on our own municipal operations and also in our community, but what can we do um, that's beyond that? And um, so Cambridge has, you know, a microgrid project, they're promoting electric vehicles, they're looking at innovative funding streams. Um, so it's really around the package of actions um, that's not just looking at their own buildings, but helping the community and then also looking at the financing and also looking at the promise of new technologies as associated with smart cities as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and what can you do with data and fostering, you know, clean tech companies in their community. Um, so those are some of the uh, really leading edge um, actions that cities like Cambridge are taking. Okay. Um, which are the most important dimensions you would say of the seven? Well, I, I, <laughs> I don't think you can say that any single dimension is more important than the other okay. um, because they're all part of a holistic pie, right? Like you can't, you know, you can't do without financing, but you also can't do without leadership and goal setting. And you, you know, you can't just do supply side strategies. You also have to do the demand side and the energy use strategies. And finally, you know, resilience. You also have to consider uh, emergency preparedness and how do you uh, set up your city so that um, you know disaster response is something on everyone's mind and that you know the city is prepared for. So. Um, I would say that you, you can't uh, select a, you know, a more important dimension over another one, Matthias. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, when we look about the, the global development of mm -hmm. smart cities, I mean, well, it's not only about smart cities, you are talking about the energy transformation, That's but right. it's, uh, yeah, quite, yeah. it's quite closely related, <coughs> I mm -hmm. guess. Um, what do you think about the opportunities for cities around the globe? Where do we see these trends? happening faster. I know in your report you have looked at different cities mm -hmm. around mm -hmm. uh, different uh, regions, uh, but where do you see the strongest development at the moment and where mm -hmm. do you expect that to move? So it's interesting that you bring up smart cities because that was one of the surprising findings about the report and about our research is how active cities are related to smart city technology you know, adoption. Um, you know, when we created the framework we thought of smart cities as an emerging area or maybe a buzzword. Um, but what we found is that cities are very active in, you know, branding specific projects as smart city initiatives, um, promoting the clean technology companies, 
making data available to the citizens and to the community. You know, cities and municipalities are realizing you know, they can't do it all on their own. You, know, you have to empower your citizens mm -hmm. and tap into the collective brain trust that's available. And so what they're really seeking to do is engage the community in new ways um, and use data as a key engagement strategy. Betty, we had a chance to talk about a few cities a little bit already. I would be interested if you could maybe, based on the U.S. cities, you mm -hmm. looked into Palo Alto or Santa Monica, uh, show in a bit more detail uh, what makes them successful or mm -hmm. where they are in the energy transition. So one thing that makes these cities so successful is that they're able to articulate very um, ambitious goals and that they engage their community in identifying the appropriate strategies and actions to achieving those goals. So for example, City of Palo Alto, um, you know, they have an 80% emissions reduction by 2030 target, but it's not, it doesn't just end there. They also have um, sector-specific goals, so to speak. So for example, they have a target of 1.3 megawatts of solar um, installed on four parking garages. And actually last, uh, last summer, they unveiled their latest solar PV system. And not only did they install PV, but they also installed 12 uh, electric vehicle chargers. So it was an opportunity to show that um, there's, an, there's a significant um, innovation happening in combining distributed energy resources like solar with other um, electric vehicles. And I think for them, you know, they'll be looking at other types of storage coming online as well. Um, so it's a very exciting time and, um, and the other things that they are doing are related, related to setting new um, reach codes related to buildings. So California already has very stringent energy codes for, uh, for buildings, but Palo Alto is exploring, you know, how can we become a zero net energy buildings, you know, city and how do we um, ensure that all new buildings are zero net energy. And so they're taking piece by piece and setting specific targets and specific goals um, to ensure that they achieve their overall emissions reduction targets. Right. Actually, when you say uh, Palo Alto, mm -hmm. uh, they have all the fancy startups around them <laughs> who could probably help them a lot in this transition. That's true. That might not be so easy for others. Mm -hmm. um, so um, to get to this, what, what, what is the role of partnerships in there? Because it's probably not only the city who can decide we go forward now, they yeah, need yeah. partners. You know, that's a really interesting point that you bring up related to Palo Alto specifically and being, you know, at the heart of, of the Silicon Valley. Um, but I, th I think that all cities have partnership opportunities like that and that um, other players in the market should be looking at cities that have set ambitious targets but perhaps don't know what to do. You know, Palo Alto is not the only city to have adopted such an ambitious goal. There are many other cities that have um, you know, climate targets, but don't know how they're going to reach there. So I encourage these other partners and players to look at the cities that are, you know, perhaps a little bit earlier, you know, in the energy transition and, um, and see how they can bring their know-how. Because, you know, you have these so-called name brand cities, but there are many, many other cities out there that have similar ambition and similar potential. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think it's about looking beyond the obvious uh, city partners and perhaps looking at, you know, what are some initiatives happening at the state level that are trying to reach more cities or even the federal level. 
Um, and this is where some of the work actually happening in Europe where um, you know, the European Commission is so active in setting ambitious goals and um, programs. And that's really been helping the European cities in um, kind of leading the way related to energy uh, ratings and energy use disclosure and other um, sort of best practices that we're seeing. Yeah, so interesting aspect, again, linking it a little bit together also with smart cities. Mm -hmm. What we see there is that we predict at least when a city manages very well to create a smart city environment which is sustainable from an uh, econ economic point of view and, and mm -hmm. offers the right quality of life, mm -hmm. um, that can empower them or they can become very powerful. Mayors yeah. can become very yeah. powerful. This yeah. is certainly something that attracts them. There is a, uh, the other side that those who are not successful uh, <laughs> probably <laughs> suffer. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, that leads us maybe to talking about risks mm -hmm. in, in this whole matter. What, what Have you figured out anything in your reports where there are risk areas? Um, <clears throat> I think for cities um, there are a lot of risks that they're trying to manage. Um, it's interesting because I think cities as a whole tend to be very risk averse, but and that's no, the leading cities are no different. Um, and and I, th I think though, it's how do you manage that risk um, related to new technologies. You know, the energy transition is about moving from the centralized fossil fuel based systems to more decentralized, um, renewable, clean energy systems. And that also involves um, new energy technologies. And so I think for cities to move on the energy transition, they really need um, to weigh the risks of new technology and new business models and new you know, revenue streams in terms of their investments. Mm. Um, you know, one, one local government that I was talking to a couple weeks ago said, we're really interested in installing um, and investing in battery storage, but the that we keep hearing how the cost of battery storage is falling so quickly and we're worried that if we invest today that the price will have fallen so much and we'll, we will have locked ourselves into mm -hmm. you know, a costly um, kind of investment or a costly business model. And so I think that's what cities are really struggling with is how do we tap into the potential of you know, new technology and yet you know, new technology comes with risks, you know, risks with interoperability, risks with the financial um, stability of new companies. And, you know, I don't, I don't actually have a, an easy answer. You know, I don't have yeah. the solution to risk management and um, the risk profile of different cities, you know, varies depending on the leadership as well as the community. Um, but those are certainly issues that cities are grappling with as they're trying to move forward um, as part of the energy transition. Yep. So you mentioned uh, financing uh, mm -hmm. already a little bit. Uh, how about the finance industry? Are they seeing cities already as an opportunity to, for investments? Mm -hmm. Not only the banks, but maybe also equity investors and yep. so on and so yep. forth. So financing was a very interesting dimension. That was, um, I think, dimension six. Um, and while I was surprised that cities were very active on the, on the smart city dimension, I was very surprised that they did not score very well on the financing dimension. Um, and the best practices we had identified were basically financing strategies that have been around for a while. You know, power purchase agreements, um, uh, green bonds, uh, energy savings performance contracts, um, and then also property tax-based strategies where you, um, instead of an on-bill payment, you, it's like a property tax, you know, 
repayment for like a solar system or weatherization. Um, so some of the tried and true strategies, we didn't find cities that we surveyed um, to be really using them. And you know, our conclusion is that, um, that they've been primarily paying for it out of their own you know, operational budgets or maybe through grants. Um, and yet, on the other hand, we've been hearing from investors that you know, we're hungry for sustainable projects, for green investing, for green bonds. We're looking for green and sustainable projects. And here we have cities with an abundance of green projects that they want to do. So, um, so I think it's about tapping into that uh, private capital and it's how do we make the city projects investable and attractive. And that's where we're seeing some initiatives um, related to you know, standardizing energy efficiency projects, standardizing projects so that you can bundle them together and make them more attractive uh, to the, the private capital. So there's a lot of work that still needs to be done on that, on that front. Yes, another angle I just uh, briefly would like to, to talk about, what about uh, regulation being, well, a supporter of that matter, but also being a roadblock? Mm. So there are regulations that do prevent cities from um, you know, tapping into some of that funding. So in the US, we have property assessed clean energy. So that's tying um, repayment of these renewable energy, like solar systems and even battery storage to your property tax. And, um, and it has to do with the way the mortgage is, is um, prioritized, like the lien on the property. So, um, so some of the biggest mortgage and biggest uh, yeah, mortgage holding companies in the US actually sued to prevent um, cities, or prevent these loans being tied to the property tax because they were afraid you know, the property tax gets prioritized over the mortgage, and they didn't want these other loans to be prioritized for repayment mm -hmm. over the primary mortgage. And so that was held up in the courts for, you know, years. Um, and so, you know, a workaround was to avoid properties that have a mortgage, but, you know, then that cuts out, you know, a very significant portion of buildings. Um, so that's an example of you know where regu regulators could have stepped in and said, okay, we're going to help you know clear this up, and stronger regulation would help um, support cities in their um, you know thinking through some of these innovative financing strategies. Yeah, interesting. Very yeah. very like mm -hmm. down to the ground problems. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe as a last question, okay. a more personal one. Uh, okay. You were working for cities like about twelve years now already. That's so right, for over a decade. What is it What excites you so much to work for cities? I, I really enjoy working with cities because they're so collaborative and because they're so forward-thinking. Um, you know, I'm inspired by my city clients every day by what they're trying to accomplish. You know, they're trying to build quality of life. They're trying to um, support local economies, you know, local jobs. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, the municipalities that I work with, they care about their citizens and they care about the local businesses and they really care about environmental stewardship and bringing that all together. Um, and it comes from a place of, you know, caring and it comes from a place of environmental stewardship. Mm -hmm. um, so I just can, I'm just inspired um, on a daily basis by what cities are trying to accomplish. Very good. Thank you very much, Betty, for Thank these you, interesting yes. insights into the new report. Thank you. Which, by the way, you can download from our website. And so, once again, thank you for your time. Thank you. And thank you to the audience for listening in. That was Betty Sito, Head of Department Sustainable Buildings and Communities from DNVGL.
Thank you for listening to this DNVGL Talks Energy podcast. To hear more podcasts in the series, please visit dnvgl.com/talksenergy.